Well, welcome to our latest Generation podcast. And my guest today is all the way from Cambridge, England. He is Graham Daniels. Um, Graham is the General Director of Christians in Sport. He is also a footballer and currently he is a Director of Cambridge United. Graham, welcome. Good afternoon, David. Okay, Christians in Sport, can you give us a, a little bit of an idea about that ministry? I, I mean, I think our viewers will be really interested in the status for sport. You know, I didn't realise that there's over 450,000 jobs directly connected to sports in the UK, and it brings in £25 billion, pounds, so it's certainly not a sideline. So, in the light of these big numbers, tell us what Christians in Sport are doing well, the clue is really in, in the name is that many, many people work at the top level in sport, of course, uh, given that the business is so big. So a significant number of people are involved in professional sport. <clears throat> and so uh, we begin by saying that many of those uh, find themselves on the road. So, for example, if it's track and field or tennis or motor racing, golf, a number of people involved in that business as a job are traveling a lot. So one of the first things we're, we're forever doing is making sure that we help those who trust Christ in those worlds to get regular access to fellowship and Bible teaching when they're on the move. And when we do it on the tours for them, it's always a chance, of course, for them to bring their friends to uh, open the Bible together and to think about the application of faith in sport. So if I gave you that side of it and briefly give you two other perspectives. Secondly, uh, university sport across the United Kingdom is strong and there's some very, very high level performers who go on their way to very good sport after university. So we have prayer meetings once a week at our major universities uh, where the players playing at the highest level at university get together, pray, the believers, uh, and each term put on an outreach event for teammates. And then perhaps finally, for younger people from 11 upwards, uh, we run camps around the UK and look out uh, with some mums and dads for children in their teens, obviously from Christian homes in this context, who are part of sports pathways where they're training two or three times a week, play, playing once, wrestling with Sunday sport. So there are hundreds of boys and girls and families involved at that level as well. So it's quite comprehensive, but effectively very narrow, helping the gospel advance inside the world of sport. Okay. Can you tell us your own journey? How did you really come to faith and how did you get into the sports ministry business? Well, I came to faith um, as a young professional footballer. I'd uh, moved uh, in my very early 20s from playing at Cardiff City to playing at Cambridge United. So I had to yeah. move away from the promised land to England. <laughs> so you were, um, you, you were in Scotland then, yeah? Uh, <laughs> very good. Well, as long as it's Celtic, count me in. <laughs> oh, it's getting worse. It's got to be Rangers. <laughs> of course. Um, I moved to uh, Cambridge to play and um, I grew up with a believing mother mm -hmm. and with one or two pals uh, at school who were Christians, uh, and it it was really playing full-time as a footballer. It had been my dream for some years. Uh, I was playing 
in the championship for Cambridge United at the time. And my boyhood hero was Kevin Keegan. Uh, I'd grown up as a Liverpool supporter for some reason in South Wales. And Keegan was my hero. And when I moved to Cambridge, he was playing at Newcastle. He was captain. He was the last year he played, actually. Uh, they were top of the league. We were bottom. And we played at St. James's Park. We lost. We lost a lot that year. Uh, we lost 2-1. But I got a goal. Wow. Uh, my wow. great hero, Keegan, got one. And I got home late that night from Newcastle to Cambridge. And it was beginning of a tipping point, really. The Lord got hold of me, I think. It was something I dreamt of since I was quite young. Uh, in a small way, achieved something I wanted to get to and found it to be vacuous. It felt like sand, hot sand mm-hmm. running through my fingers. Mm-hmm. Uh, and thereby began perhaps the last leg anyway in God's plan uh, from a praying mother to one or two good friends at school to a six-month period where living a long way from Wales, living on my own in digs, I started reading my Bible, or at least the New Testament, started buying books uh, about the veracity of the gospel particularly. I'd done philosophy as an undergrad while playing at Cardiff and uh, knew I had to put my trust in Christ when I was around 22, something like that. So thereby began uh, 35 years of following Christ, but but finding a vocation in, in taking him into the world of sport. Yeah, that's an amazing story that right at the peak, I mean, you scored a goal in the same match as your hero and, and you found it empty. I, I want to talk about some, you know, we've got one or two young guys and indeed girls in our churches up here in Scotland and disappointment is a key issue for them to get into you know the top even in Scotland you know Rangers Celtic England Chelsea Man U whatever you know so few folk um, achieve that and there are so many disappointments along the road how are you able to minister to young people who are bitterly disappointed well, I, I think the first thing one has to acknowledge, of course, is that uh, trying to take away the disappointment in, in and of itself uh, is not the right starting point. Mm-hmm. Because any child who's very good at sport, or indeed anything for that matter, but I think particularly sport in our, in our cultural climate, because you're fated because of it, you know, as a youngster at yeah. school and the region and playing perhaps for Scotland and getting one of the big clubs or the Olympic sports governing bodies, everybody knows that you are this girl or this boy. So it's a heck of a blow when you hit the wall and very hard to navigate that disappointment. All the stats say, David, uh, secular stats, I mean, initially, the stats say the healthiest thing you can do for any athlete to avoid an exclusive athletic identity and just identifying themselves with their performance the, the healthiest thing you can do is to help that young person realize that they're much more than that. They may mm-hmm. be very good at it, but they're still your child and you don't really care if they win or lose. You just love them, period. Uh, they're still a brother or sister and a grandchild and they're still a student at school. And, and the secular authorities rightly say, keep allowing a young person to see that though they're very good at sport, it is not the sum total of who they are. Simple as that seems, it's not easy because when your child is on a pathway to potential greatness, as it were, yeah. 
parents get caught up with it, yeah. even without trying to. Yeah. So that, that's the first piece of advice I think we'd give. Make sure that they know they're more than that and don't narrow their world down because most children don't make it, as it were, to the top of the sport. Uh, they drop out. Yeah. However, the most important thing you can ever say is that winning and losing is very, very painful to lose and very, very exciting to win. But the greatest victory in the universe, which will transcend all winning, which must end in the end, and all defeat, is to know Christ personally. To know Christ is to know unconditional love. Yeah. And unraveling, unraveling the way that that constantly gets confused, of course, uh, unraveling the heart of the gospel for the young person week after week. Well done today. Great result. You played really well. You played really well. But, you know, the Lord Jesus loves you whether you won or not. Yeah. You lose. The Lord Jesus loves you. It doesn't matter if you feel ashamed. It doesn't matter if you're sad. Cry. Don't worry about it. But remember this. The Lord Jesus died for you. He loves you unconditionally. It'll never depend on winning or losing. That constant reinforcement of the gospel of grace mm -hmm. and not to be confused with works is the absolutely central dynamic for a Christian parent. And, and absolutely. And, and seeing that the gospel is not simply the entry point to the Christian faith, but applying it all through the Christian faith, that it's all of grace. And indeed, one of the things I've got down in my notes to talk to you about is identity, because, you know, heroism and achievement is such a big issue in sport that they've got to see their identity as being in Christ uh, above everything. Uh, absolutely. Uh, and along those lines, uh, I if you're if you were probing me on pretty much all the work we do, so I'm not long back uh, from a major uh, world athletics event where uh, we get together once a day, perhaps to read the Bible with athletes and coaches who are, who are involved in it, and pretty much we'll try and be expository and, and take uh, consecutive passages if it's there for a week or two. But of course, underpinning it is the whole reform position that says. Grace is unconditional. It simply can never be earned. And it's only living in the light of unconditional grace. Ephesians 2, 8 to 10. We're saved by grace through faith, not by works so that we can't boast. But we're saved for good works prepared in advance for us. And you're constantly unraveling with senior athletes that God has made you, in Liddell's words, fast. <laughs> God has given you this vocational talent. It is a gift of God. You should work hard at it. You, you should. And, you, and at the same time, constantly keep saying to yourself, whether I win or lose is just a matter of sport. It's a contest. Yes. I'm racing against you. Yeah. I'll win some. I'll lose some. Yeah. I'll cry when I lose. I smile when I win. Yeah. But unconditional love transcends victory or defeat. And indeed, the vocation that God has given me is to love my neighbor as myself. And at that, I will work hard. Yeah. But my neighbor is my competitor or my coach do, or the do, guy in the lane next to me. Do athletes, because they're so performing driven and because basically they can follow their own dream and they set their own goals, is grace difficult for them to accept generally? Oh, David, brilliant, brilliant. Hard for us all to accept, but for the high performance, 
very public-facing athletic woman or man. Incredibly difficult. Incredibly. Take some sports. Perhaps uh, football's been my world, uh, and the world's changing a little bit, but over generations, it's the case has been if you lose on Saturday, you're left in no doubt, no doubt, that you must take the pain that you're facing now in, de- in defeat, harness it, get angry at losing, be determined that it won't happen to you next week, and harness all that anger and determination to victory next time out. Mm-hmm. You should be ashamed of yourself for losing. You should have. You shouldn't be going out. You shouldn't be seeing people, and bottle it all up, because next time you'll know what the pain feels like, and you'll win. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now that works. That's entirely works-oriented perspective on life, and and we're constantly having to say, for example, to footballers, no, 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 no. The Lord Jesus loves you right now. You lost two nil. You had a shocker. Mm-hmm. You missed a penalty. Mm-hmm. You know what? It really, really does matter if you'd scored five. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The death of Calvary is unconditional. Mm-hmm. Faith in Christ with repentance means he never goes away. On the other hand, you don't have to beat yourself up now, but what you do need to do is to look seriously at what went wrong today. You need to serve your teammates next week. You need to work hard for next Saturday. But please don't spend the next week imploring God to help you to do better next time. Mm-hmm. No. And it slips, it slips into that. It slips into praying to win, for example. Yeah. And we eschew that at all costs. I mean, idolatry is a problem for us all. Um, the average Premier League wage in 2017 passed 50,000 a week. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, obviously, that's very serious money. Do you find, I mean, even even lower leagues, someone will get paid, you know, um, 80,000, 90,000, you know, it's not unusual. Hmm. Is money the, you know, trappings of, of wealth? <laughs> I mean, it's almost a stupid question, but do you find that's a major snare for your athletes? Well, it's not a stupid question at all, David, because actually uh, I've done this a long time and I've never found money to be the snare. Yeah, interesting. Uh, because if if you're in the Premier League uh, of football, if you're in the top divisions, uh, England, Scotland, Spain and so on, um, it's a weird thing to say, but you've always been used to the money. Mm-hmm. You don't think about it. Mm-hmm. What? Lower down, and in and pretty much every other professional sport, not everyone, but you're not paid anything like that, mm-hmm. of course. But but in, in in let's stick to those with big money. No, it was your previous question where the idolatry lies. It's it's worshipping your identity. Mm-hmm. It's staying at the top of the game. It's not being ashamed in public. It's the child who at six was beating everybody in races and at nine was beating everybody in the county and at 14 was beating everyone in the country and at 20 is beating everyone in Europe and at 22 is world champion. Their idolatry is that they can't lose their public status. And of course, it leads to total despair because you now feed the demon. Mm-hmm. You'll do anything to win, mm-hmm. anything to win. You'll even ask God to help you win. 
mm-hmm. which is the definition of idolatry. Wow. Yeah. Anything but losing my status, anything but getting injured. Mm-hmm. So the actual battle of idolatry is retaining public status as opposed to the money, I- invariably. Mm-hmm. It's very, very it, of course, it doesn't look sad from the outside because these people are wealthy. But my goodness, they're bound by that idol. Mm-hmm. It cripples them. It takes away all their joy, all mm-hmm. their joy at sport. They have no joy in their sport. It's ridiculous, really. Mm-hmm. Winning is just a relief. Mm-hmm. And I can tell you now, that's pretty much the normal situation with the very top people. Winning mm-hmm. isn't joyous. Mm-hmm. It's just a relief. Mm-hmm. So we've got to lead them to Christ mm-hmm. so that they can see that sport is a vocation and that joy, joy is found in free grace. Mm-hmm. Very hard for them to get. Yeah, it's interesting because, you know, in tennis, you get Djokovic and Federer. Apparently, you know, these days, they, they just almost give away all, all, all their money. It's like it's not about money anymore it's this desire to to win can just moving on to one or two other issues um because the lord's day sunday is clearly special in the christian tradition it's a good time to go to church a lot of these folk are on the road all the time maybe they don't experience a normal church life how how do you guys handle that well perhaps a story is something you could extrapolate from if you want. So very recently, uh, as I mentioned, I was at a major world athletics tournament and a, a young man uh, on Sunday morning at the event walked into what perhaps globally we sometimes call the chapel meeting, where you pull the athletes together, um, earthed in American culture, really, sports chapel. But we had chapel uh, first thing on Sunday morning at this event, and in walks a young man, uh, and I greet him, and he says, uh, my pastor uh, said, it was his first international event, he said, my my pastor said, if I saw any kind of chapel, I should go. I'm here. So in he came, and he he was a professing boy, professing faith, and, and I think quite a keen young man uh, in Christ. Met with him three or four times during the event. Uh, it went nicely for him. But the first thing one would do then is get hold of his pastor's number. So when the lad's gone home and it's all over, um, I got permission uh, from him, of course, and, and phoned his pastor and said, now this lad's going to be on the on the road probably four or five months a year around the world. Um, what would be the best way for us to serve his local church for serving him? So that would be the normative pattern that we'd adopt if a boy has come from a church initially. There are other scenarios, of course. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, would you say it was pretty rare these days for someone to take an Eric Little position and simply refuse to play on a Sunday? Yes, at at the professional level of sport, uh, I don't know anyone who doesn't play on a Sunday. Okay. Now, it, I want to be careful on this because, of course, one has personal opinions. And I'm on the staff of a church called St. Andrew the Great in Cambridge and have been for some years. Um, One has one's own opinions on the Sabbath. Um, I think there are two ways we approach this as a parachurch organization. Number one, if men and women find themselves in elite sport on the road around the world, uh, we simply do what we can to lead them to Christ, to develop people in Christ, and to try with all our might, if they're not going to church when they're at home, 
to find a good church, a Bible teaching church in their home country that we could ask to look after them. So that would be our pathway. Uh, and often parents will say to us in our own country, we can't go to church on Sunday if we go to this sporting event that my child's part of 40 times a year. Mm-hmm. We strongly advise that that is a local church issue. We are a parachurch work. And though each, there are different opinions about this and different staff members of Christians in sport, I think at all costs, we try and make the local church the key stopping point for people from Christian homes, for sure. Because for us to step in and tell people what they should or ought to do on that, I think is beyond the remit of a parachurch work. Okay. I'm always intrigued at the connection between parachurch and church. Mm. So, you know, I am encouraged that you really try to feed your, your contacts into the local church. Is that a value you hold to quite strongly? Yes, very strongly indeed, uh, extremely strongly. Uh, all the people who have any leadership uh, in this particular work, Christians in sport, uh, are uh, d- deeply involved in their own local Christian community, uh, as indeed, I'm, as I said earlier, I'm on the staff of St. Andrew the Great in Cambridge. And uh, um, I think the work of Christians in sport is to say two things, really. One, some of the tours I've just mentioned to you, very hard for a local church to fund somebody to travel on the tennis tour or the golf tour. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we have a super um, man called Kenny Crawford, uh, who works partly for the BBC and partly on the men's European golf tour for Christians mm-hmm. in sport. Kenny's based in Glasgow. Mm-hmm. Um, so very hard for a local church to get somebody on the golf tour around Europe. Uh, and so we'll find the finances to do that kind of work, discrete, distinctive work. Uh, so we definitely try and do that. And, and then in our own country, where it's far easier, obviously, for people playing sport, even at a high level, to be involved in their local church, uh, we'll just try and provide insight and resources for local churches for helping very sporty young people or students on their way gospel-wise. Okay, so that's how it works. Yeah, Does, is Christians in sport just involved with um, performance and athletes? For example, uh, the recent Rugby World Cup, you guys were involved in that. Would you also get involved in evangelism amongst the the crowds and the other peripheral staff members? Uh, no, we wouldn't. Uh, we partner with many other organisations who specialise in that. Um, but the very, it's, it's a super question. The very specific thing we're set up for is to work inside the sport with sports people, coaches, officials uh, at a competitive and elite level. Yeah. So yeah. In, a, in a simplistic way, I suppose we might say we work in sport, not through sport. Yeah, it's really good that an organization an organisation knows what they don't do as well mm-hmm. as what they do. Yeah, yeah that brings real clarity um, to your, your mission. Now, I, I remember years ago listening to a Christians in Sport, it was a video in those days, mm-hmm. there was a very high-profile you know, soccer player whose name is irrelevant just now, but uh, mm-hmm. he had a, you know, a fairly public fall from grace not just in his personal life but in his kind of theology or philosophy turned out to be somewhat um bizarre mm-hmm. what do you think about that when a you know a high profile sports person is really 
given Christian celebrity status. Mm. Can you just, you know, comment on the positives and the negatives of that scenario? Oh, most certainly. Um, I became the director of Christians in Sport in 2002. It was set up in 84, formally. It had been going a little bit informally before that. I was converted in 84, so I knew the work from the beginning. So I'd have been part of that cohort of people. Obviously, my team, I was a pretty low-level player, but there were very elite people. Glenn Hoddle Mm -hmm. uh, was very famous at the time, amongst others. Um, And Christians in sport, perhaps I should put it like this, because I was there at the beginning as a young believer, still playing football, mind. Um, Nobody knew any better than the best thing you could do was in the same way that celebrity sells things, it might as well sell the gospel. So videos are very famous. The handful of famous Christians were made. Yeah. Um, I agreed with the trustees and indeed with the founder of Christians in Sport uh, that when I became the general director, that we wouldn't be using public testimony again Mm -hmm. at all of young people who profess faith in Christ because the risks simply aren't worth it. Um, because they're young people, pretty much always, late teens, into their 20s, certainly usually before 30. And what those young people need is a local church, if at all possible, where they'll be brought into the family of God, mm-hmm. properly integrated. And they must learn to share Christ amongst their teammates, as we all need to do in our workplace and at home. Not be a spokesman for Jesus when you can't string two thoughts of theology together. Yeah. So we, do, we don't do it anymore, David. We don't do it. Yeah, because, I mean, I've looked in your website and there's such wisdom there. You know, you've not put anybody up as a great example of a celebrity Christian. And, you know, to hear the story and to know that that came out of pain, um, you know, I think is a real tribute to your own thinking on that particular idea. Yeah. Mm. I, I mean, I, look, it, I put it in a black and white way, and, and I, I'd have to confess to you that I wrestle with it a little bit sometimes because um, there are some people, uh, and indeed around the world, people do this a lot. Lots of sports mission organizations do do that. And there are sometimes people who are natural communicators and, and strong Christian homes and so on. Mm-hmm. So. Taking a black and white stance sometimes seems a bit abrupt, uh, and I'm told that, but I just don't think the trade-off's worth it. And I think if we are asked, could so-and-so speak uh, about the Lord Jesus at such and such an event, we always point them to the local church pastor of the home that they come from, and we strongly recommend to the pastor, unless he's absolutely certain. You should say no. Yeah, because but we do leave it with them. Yeah, uh, the safe thing is always to say, "Listen, what do you think of Jesus?" You know, can you you can get a guy like you know Tyson Fury, folk would say he was yeah. a Christian, and he's got, shall we say, somewhat distinctive theological views. So you're not promoting any person. You're not promoting a personality. You're constantly saying, "Listen, sportsmen and women are not gods." Um, they are frail, but you know we are pointing to Jesus, and He is He is the man. Mm. Agreed. Now, <clears throat> one of the interesting things that 
you hear certainly here in Scotland and soccer and, and other sports is that some of the training regimes can be really brutal. You know, you hear stories about old school training uh, regimes. Um, I'm not sure if it's the, the Alec Ferguson hair <laughs> hair blower mm. approach, but sometimes the environment can be really, really tough and and, and brutal. Um, mm. How do you get a culture of humility and servanthood? How do you influence the whole sports culture? Well, I, I think there's two ways of approaching it, actually. I think, let me start with a simpler one. Um, if, if people come to know Christ and you're able to influence that, we'll know a number of coaches, for example, managers, coaches, mm -hmm. that kind of thing in football now and, and rugby and cricket and tennis and so on, hockey, because we've been going for 40 years. Mm -hmm. So, of course, in their case, to some extent, you're trusting uh, the work of sanctification in their lives as they grow older and take coaching responsibilities, that they might see a whole person. Uh, as opposed to a transaction with somebody to do a job for you. Mm -hmm. So on one level, though we'll work at that with them, uh, Christian maturity ought to bring that. Mm -hmm. I, I think if you're talking to a world or a club that isn't, no one's in leadership who, who is in Christ, I, I'll often tell this story, uh, which you can see on YouTube of Roy Keane, actually. You know, who, he was asked... Um, Hey, tell us before it went bad with Fergie after yeah. around 12 years. Tell us about the hairdryer. Yeah. Did you ever get the hairdryer, Roy? Because I imagine you gave the hairdryer, something yeah. like that. And he says, no, 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 put away the hairdryer. He said, you can't play 12 years for a man and win lots of trophies uh, based on a hairdryer. He says, it's a bit of a myth. He says, actually, let me tell you the, the most painful moment I had with Alex Ferguson. And then he proceeds to say it was halftime. They were losing. He was playing really badly himself. Fergie came in at halftime, walked over to Roy Keane, whispered to Roy Keane, Roy, Roy, come on, come on. Mm -hmm. And Roy Keane said that was the worst moment of my career so far mm -hmm. because I loved the man because I knew he loved me. Mm -hmm. So I think there are spectacular stories of other people's versions and other models of bad behavior and using the player. But I think the people who last in sport, who really last, the leaders who last, tend to be people who see the person before the, uh, before the player, before the person they can use. So I think I say to people, look at the great managers, because they're the ones who actually did get the love of their players, and you don't get love without giving it. Yeah. Isn't that, so I'm not naive. I'm not naive. <laughs> it's, it's really interesting you use the word love. And even, you know, if we take the doctrine of common grace, yes. um, you can see managers uh, who are not believers, and yet through common grace, you step back and you say, wow, these are actually biblical Christian principles, you know, from tough love to tenderness. And yeah. that, you know, that gives you an avenue to explore um, the gospel. Yeah, yeah, it, it does. And, and I think so, so much modern coaching, yeah, it, it's healthy, really. So much modern coaching now across all the governing bodies says transactional behavior is not helpful to building a team. Uh, it's more holistic, as it were, would be the language people would use. But I entirely agree with you. I think the challenge for the believer 
in sport is always both to rejoice in common grace, of course, uh, and to utilize common grace. And I think the more embedded you are in sports culture as a Christian, <laughs> it's the guts to say this is wonderful that this isn't transactional, it's entirely relational. But still to say, but you still need a savior. And I think here's the challenge for people as coaches and leaders inside professional sport. You want to stay in the business. You want to be good at your job. You don't want to upset the apple cart too much. But you owe it to your colleagues, chairman, teammates, fellow officials. You owe it to them that they do hear the need for a savior, not in the public arena, but one to one. And my goodness, as with all of us, it's a hard line when you work somewhere permanently to make sure that you tell people that there's a judgment to come as well. Sure, sure. Well, and I've rested many times. Yeah. Do you have a presence in Scotland? Y yes, we do. We have um, uh, three staff are only there to facilitate the real people, which is the players and coaches and young people and students in sport. But yes, we do. Um, Kirsten Ross um, is a girl who looks after, has looked after the work, organised the work in Scotland for many years mm -hmm. uh, for us. Uh, Kirsten's uh, near Perth. Mm -hmm. uh, we have a lad called Dave Hampton mm -hmm. who works across the field with youngsters and students and uh, competitive and elite adults. Uh, he's at Charlotte Chapel in Edinburgh, actually. Oh, yeah. mm -hmm. And uh, we've got Kerry Crawford, uh, as I mentioned earlier, is Glasgow-based and uh, works on the European Golf Tour as well as doing some work uh, as a broadcaster for the BBC. So uh, three folks on the payroll, as it were, uh, but three folks entirely committed to working with leaders who don't earn a bean mm -hmm. uh, and churches for the advancement of the gospel cause in their own neighbourhood. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. You know, I know that Dave coaches at one of the Edinburgh um, rugby yes, clubs. So, you know, he's big on, on that. And Kirsten, of course, is, is a netball player. And, uh, right. you know, they are all involved in, in sports. What about sports chaplaincy? Again, do you intersect with that or is that a different ministry? Yes, uh, both really. Um, back in the 70s and 80s when Christians in Sport was getting going, uh, original chaplaincy began. Uh, through people who got involved in Christians in sport. And then somewhere around the late 80s, early 90s, uh, we made the decision uh, with a man called John Boyers, who actually set up uh, the current sports chaplaincy organization. Mm -hmm. um, we felt it would probably be pragmatic that if there was going to be official chaplaincy, where you had to deal with uh, governing bodies and officials of clubs, then they'd be pretty rule bound. And there'd be pretty tight parameters on what you could and couldn't do. Mm -hmm. So um, the way we've worked for 25 years, really, is that the official chaplaincy organizations work formally and sign agreements uh, and codes of conduct with governing bodies, and rightly so, uh, to behave appropriately uh, as required by the governing bodies. Mm -hmm. And then the Christians in sports staff workers, particularly in elite sport, are able to complement that because they have no formal obligations to the club or the governing body. Mm -hmm. uh, but often they'll be reading the Bible one-to-one -one with the athletes 
not necessarily at the club, while the chaplain is going about the pastoral business, as it were, within the club. Mm-hmm. So it's proved to be a very healthy and fruitful and well-balanced uh, partnership, informal partnership for many years. Yeah, it sounds like a great symbiotic relationship. We've got a good relationship with a guy called uh, Mark Fleming, who... Oh, outstanding. You know, you, outstanding. You, you know Mark. You know Mark's outstanding. A, a great guy. Outstanding. He's done a lot yeah, of uh, chaplaincy work, not just across soccer, but uh, we're even looking to do a chaplain for Shinty, which is a kind of Scottish game. One of our members, mm-hmm. Katrina Lament, um, Katrina is involved in the administration of sports mm-hmm. chaplaincy. So it's a whole new, yeah. a whole new world, isn't it? Yeah, and it's and it's really, really excellent. And, and when you mentioned Common Grace earlier, I I, I think in God's kindness uh, at the moment in in the West for sure. Uh, the ability with the needs for mental health and, and all the kind of crises going on culturally. Chaplaincy within secular institutions in sport is growing like never before. And people like Mark Fleming are absolutely crucial to sensible gospel advancement through chaplaincy. And, and we're delighted to be partners in an informal way with them. It's excellent work. Isn't it a strange paradox in what's supposed to be a secular society people are actually more and more open to, let's call it, spirituality and certainly, in our case, Christian values. Do you find that? Oh, oh definitely. Uh, uh, David, I'm 57. I was converted at 22. So, of course, only history will tell where any of us were in the broad sweep of things, uh, but in a, in a very amateur way, without any empirical basis. I often think people who say we're post-Christian are probably wrong. Yeah, I think we're almost pre-Christian. Um, and I find it a very exciting time in sport because perhaps the cultural cynicism against church and Christianity that I'd have more or less grown up with in my era, despite living in South Wales, mm-hmm. that seems to have disappeared. People don't actually know the gospel. They don't actually know the gospel, mm-hmm. um, youngsters. Uh, and so in some ways, I find it a very thrilling time. It comes fresh. We took a boy, we took a young boy of 24 away with a bunch of footballers a couple of years ago. And we worked through Mark's gospel, uh, a handful of believers, mostly not Christians, and five nights away training and practicing. And there was an option to come to work through Mark's gospel. Uh, in the evening for an hour with a bite to eat. When we got to the cross, a young man, and a bright young man, really, said, uh, he said to me afterwards, what a story this is. As we walked out, he said, what happens next? Give me a, give me a heads up for what happens tomorrow. <laughs> and, I th- and I knew he wasn't joking, you know, because he's quite an earnest boy. And he, d- he, d- he actually didn't know there was a resurrection. Yeah, yeah. So, I, I, and this is sort of mainstream culture. Uh, I mean, he's a bright boy. He's a decent, yeah. well, well brought up boy. So I find it a very exciting time, and, I, and I'm hoping the Lord will do great things, not just in sport, but that's my little corner of the garden. So yeah, that's where I'm concentrating. Well, it's a great story, and that's maybe a great way to come to an end. That you know, the cross is not the final chapter. There is a resurrection, and indeed. We know the very end of the chapter, that the end of all days, um, all the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. And we know uh, that there'll be many uh, sports people 
along with them at that time. Uh, Graham, thank you so much. I could listen to your accent all day. Um, it's it's the next best thing to a Scottish accent. It really is uh, uh, wonderful, melodic. You know, I could almost hear you singing Comronda. Um, <laughs> well, I, I was hoping to <laughs> in a major World Cup final, but it never came around. <laughs> well, in, in that respect, we've probably got more in common than Scots and, and Welsh. As Scots, we're we're glorious right. losers, you know, and uh, that's just the way it is. Graham, yes, it thank is. you so much. Thank you for the work. It's been a real eye-opener. I didn't know much about uh, the work of Christians in sport. You have spoken eloquently. I love your philosophy, your biblical basis, your emphasis on grace. You're celebrating Jesus, not celebrity. And we, and I'm sure all our listeners, wish you every blessing. David, what a privilege. And thank you very much indeed. Great to meet you too. Thank you. And to our listeners, thank you for staying with us. And we look forward to connecting again next week with another interesting guest. Have a great day.